Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David trembling and said to him, why are you alone and, and why is no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, the king has charged me with a matter and said to me, let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I've charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever's here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread. If the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy, even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priests gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there, but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it's taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, "Then, Then have you not here a sword or a spear at hand? For I've brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, the sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it's here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. And if you'll take that, take it, for there's none but that here. And David said, there is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and, and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, behold, you see this man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Ajalam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down to him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were with him about 400 men. And David went from there to Mizpah of Moab. And he said to the king of Moab, Please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. And he left them with the king at Moab. And they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold. Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went into the forest of Hareth. Now that's a, that's a good story, and it's an engaging story, and there's a little bit of a drama there, and a little bit of intrigue as well. But maybe when you read stories like this, you just say, huh, what an interesting story. But stories like this are always in the Bible for a purpose, for a reason. They're meant for us to see something either about God, and about His nature, His character, or about what it means to follow God. In this case, I think this story is meant to help us see Really, the, the main idea, really, if you will, of this whole story is that, is that God is gracious. He's, he's merciful. He's providential. He's personal to his desperate followers. Maybe today you came to church and you were feeling desperate. 
Maybe you're in a desperate financial situation. Maybe you're without work, or maybe you're buried under debt, or maybe it's out of your control, or maybe it's due to bad decisions, or maybe you feel desperately unqualified and unable to carry out your responsibilities at work or in your family or in your home. I know all of us from time to time can feel like that, can't we? Maybe your husband it feels desperately unable to care for and love and lead his wife like God has called you to. I know that I feel that way often. Maybe your mom who feels desperately unable to ever get ahead of the needs of her children and household and you feel buried under dishes and diapers and snotty noses. Well, not buried on the snotty noses, but, you know, it's a metaphor. Maybe, maybe you're a desperate kid or you're a desperate teen and you're, you're being harassed, you're being made fun of at school and you don't feel like you can make it. And maybe you feel like the only way out is to, to cut yourself or to consider giving up. Or maybe you're, you're here and you're desperately addicted. Maybe you're struggling with some kind of drug or alcohol or other addiction. Maybe you're a student desperately struggling to survive in school, just hoping that maybe you'll get good grades and don't fail so that maybe one day you can go to college and have a future. Or maybe you're in college and you're desperate just to pass. Maybe you're in a desperate relationship with a family member or a friend or a spouse. Or maybe you're desperate for your children to obey. You're still wits in with your kids. You don't know what to do. Or maybe, maybe you're a parent whose children have grown up and you're just desperate to see them come to know God. Maybe you're in conflict with somebody else and you're desperately aware of your need. Whatever the reason is that you might be aware of your reason for God, I think to some degree all of us are desperate people. All of us are desperate people. And and the good news is that we find answers in God's word. And in fact, the Bible is just chock full. If you think about it for a moment, the Bible is chock full of stories about desperate people, isn't it? Um, that's why there's a lot of hope in the Bible, because it's, it's full of people we can relate to and identify with. You can think of Noah and his wife and children, the cleaning God and faith and the evil time, and God saves them through a storm and through floods and the ultimate desperate flood. And Jacob, he, he desperately flees his brother Esau because he deceived and lied and manipulated, and he was afraid for his life, and so he goes on the run. And then Naaman, he wasn't a part of God's people, but he was desperate to be healed from leprosy, and then you read of, of Mordecai and Esther. They were in a foreign land with a foreign ruler that was potentially going to wipe out their entire people, commit genocide against, wipe out a whole people group. They were desperate for seeing God intervene. Maybe it's the desperate women at the well who sought, who Jesus sought to give the water of life. Maybe the desperate man whose son was possessed of the demon and used to throw himself in the fire or the desperate prostitute who was facing stoning and yet Jesus rescued her with a few well-placed words of conviction. Or the desperate man of the cross who was beside Jesus and in his final moments acknowledged who Jesus was and Jesus said, truly this day you will be with me in paradise. The Bible is full of desperate people like an ancestor of David's. Think about Naomi. And how desperate she was when her husband and her boys, all the potential sources of income, when they, they were in a foreign land and they all died and she was desperate for help. And yet God supplied the kinsman redeemer through her daughter-in-law. 
and and rescued them. And see, the Bible's full of people with desperate stories. And maybe you have a desperate story, or maybe you've you've been in a desperate place before. Well, if you're not in a desperate place, I hope you you'll find solace just seeing how God graciously provides for his servant. That's the first thing that we're going to see in this passage, really, is that God graciously provides for his servant. That's what we can see throughout. There's a thread here. This isn't just a story about David. It's ultimately a story about how God provides for his servant. God's graciously providing for a servant. If you look down in the, in the first nine verses, really, the, those first nine verses just show how, how God has used his normal circumstances to graciously provide for David. He flees, and in case you um, aren't knowing where we're at in the story with David, he is fleeing for his life from Saul. He tried running to Samuel. That didn't work so great. God protected him, was his refuge there. But then David thinks, oh, I'll go to Jonathan. He's my covenant um, brother, and I'll go to him. Maybe there's rescue there. And Jonathan says, no, in the end, Saul wants to kill you. You better flee. So God's sending you out. And so David's on the run. He's fearing for his life, and he runs to Nob. It's a, a few miles south of where Saul was, where he intended to kill David. It was thought by scholars that, that Nob was perhaps the place of the tabernacle and the priest of the time, even though the ark wasn't kept there. And so David runs to a place where he thinks he'll find refuge and solace. Have you ever watched those old movies about the Middle Ages and, and often people would run to the, a church because it's a place of sanctuary or solace? Well, that, that came from somewhere. And so Saul, I mean, David is running to the priest and he's looking for some kind of solace. He, he's in desperate condition. He's got nowhere to go. He can't go home. He can't go to his wife because his wife's the daughter-in-law, I mean, the daughter of Saul, and Saul's watching the house. And he can't go to Jonathan because Jonathan says, you need to get out of here. He can't go to his own hometown because people will be looking for him there. And since he was a commander of all the armies of war at one point in time, he probably can't go to any major city in, in Israel either because any major city would probably have some of the soldiers that served under David who may or may not be loyal to Saul. David's situation was really desperate. And so he flees. And he flees from Saul in a hurry. And he doesn't take time to pack or get supplies or weapons from his house. He, he can't stop anywhere to, to get food or, or anything. And so he goes to Ahimelech. And we see this interesting note. It says, Ahimelech, when he came to him, trembled in fear. Now, we don't know why Ahimelech trembled in fear. Maybe it's because of David's reputation as a mighty warrior. And he's thinking, what's up with this? Why am I getting a visit from the, one of the king's chief warriors? Or maybe Ahimelech had heard that King Saul wanted to kill David, which is most likely the case. And he thought, oh my goodness, what in the world? Am I going to bring Saul's wrath on me by aiding one of the king's enemies? And so Ahimelech says, what are you doing here alone? And he smells a rat. You know, he says, um, why... Why are you here by yourself? Normally the head of the king's army or the head of the, the armies of war or the, at least a thousand, normally he would have a, a big retinue of soldiers with him. And, and yet here David's alone. And so Ahimelech's a little intimidated. And so David comes up with this kind of quick cover story, but I don't think Ahimelech necessarily bought it. You, you ever a place where you're in trouble and you come up with some kind of story to cover your, kind of, cover your bases? Ahimelech, maybe he notices Doeg the Edomite, which it references later, and, and he knows that, wait a minute, Doeg's not even an Israelite, and I know Doeg works for Saul, so I better come up with something quick. We don't know why he came up with the story on the fly, but it wasn't very well thought through, was it? He goes, yeah, yeah, I'm, a, I'm on a secret mission. I'm on a secret mission from, God, from the king, sorry. Um, little Blues Brothers reference there unintentionally. Um, 
He said, I'm a secret mission that I can't tell anybody about. That's why I'm here alone. And I, I wanted to tell you. And, and, and the reason why I, I've, I've let my, the, the guys go on ahead and I want to meet them in such and such a place. And, and, and the actual word for that is, uh, yeah, somewhere else kind of thing. It's, yeah, that's the ticket. And he's kind of, he's making this cover story up on the fly. And, and he says, you know, what do you, what do you have to eat? What do you have on hand? Just, just give me five loaves. What do you have you've got? And obviously he's desperate. He, he's, he doesn't have time to wait for him like to fix him any food. He doesn't have time to, to wait for normal hospitality that a priest might provide. So he says, whatever you have on hand, whatever you have right here, right now, give it to me. And him like says, I don't have anything. We're kind of in the tabernacle, you know. And it's not like I, you know, I pack a lunch here or something, you know. So um, he says, you know, what I've got is the bread of the presence. And the bread of the presence, it would have been bread that was specifically only reserved for the priesthood. It was, it was bread that, that the people prepared. Each representative of the tribes would prepare a loaf per tribe. And, and it's actually like a five pound loaf. So think of a massive loaves of bread. And they would bring these loaves of bread and they would give them to the priests. And the priests would put them in the holy place, only where the place where only the priests could go. And they put them on the show table outside of the presence of God. And this bread was, was meant to to symbolize, in, in a way, the, the people's desire to, to sacrifice, to give themselves for God. But in the end, the, the bread wasn't kept there. Um, it, was, it was removed, and it was actually given as provision for the priest. And, and this bread, it was used to provide for the priesthood, and only the priest could eat it. It's a little different, and there's a little kind of a side, just a little detail, is that um, the, the bread, unlike... Um, sacrifices given to other deities in the time. There was this, this foreign deity, this pagan deity named Anu and the city of Anak and the Philistines. And, and they would give sacrifices several times a day and supposedly the food would mysteriously disappear where, you know, the priests are just carting it away. And the idea there was that people sustained their God. But that's not what we see with God. God actually sustains his people through his providing for his priesthood through the bread. And so God is actually providing for his, his one who would be a prefigure of Christ, the ultimate priest and king. And he provides for his servant from, from his own house, if you will. And we see that God provides for his servant. And, and Ma- Jesus refers to this in Matthew. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, in Mark too. Jesus refers to this and he explains that, you know, Ahimelech's violating God's law, but God's law wasn't made to, it was, it was made to serve us and so that we can serve God. And, and so David here is being provided for. And he tells them, he says, yeah, of course, uh, we normally keep ourselves from, from women on missions. And yeah, of course, in this secret mission, we're really keeping ourselves. Now, David didn't have any men with him at all. But we see the priest, though, he gives him the holy bread of the presence and God provides for him. And then David asks Ahimelech, he says, do you have anything else here? Do you have like a, a sword on hand? Do you have a, a sword or a spear? Anything I can defend myself with? You see, David doesn't just need food. He, he needs some ability to defend himself and, and care for himself. And so Ahimelech says, well, you know, I don't have anything. But just so happens in God's providence, it just so happened that the sword of Goliath of Gath, who David slew, it's wrapped up in a cloth. It's behind the ephod, you know, kind of behind the altar here. And um, you can have that. And David's like, oh, my goodness, there's nothing like that one. You know, give it to me. You know, it's this, this famous sword. And so he gives it to David. 
And so what are we meant to see in these things? Is this, is this just a story of how God provides for David or how David kind of cons Ahimelech into, into providing for him? No, this is, this is meant to show us that, that God uses normal circumstances and he provides for his servants. God graciously provides for his servant. You know, sometimes he does that for us in, in big ways. Maybe you're aware how God's provided for you in some big ways in the past, or sometimes he does that in really small ways. Sometimes you just get your daily bread. You know, maybe you're struggling, like I mentioned earlier, financially, and, and yet, you know what? You ate today, and you ate this week. Or maybe you don't think that you're desperate for God, but you ate, and God provided for you, and he defends you, and he gives you what you need, and, and he graciously provides for you. Well, next we're going to see in verses 10 through 15 that not only does God provide in seemingly mundane ways and feed us in ways we might take for granted, but God mercifully delivers his servant. And I would say even when he does something foolish, you ever, you ever been in a situation where you've done something really foolish and God delivered you anyway? I can't count how many times I've done foolish things and, and yet God has delivered me. And yet we see here, David is running. And he's so desperate. And think about how desperate he is and, and what a foolish thing he does. He's so desperate. Not only he, he gets bread from Ahimelech and he gets a sword from him, Goliath's sword. But think about where he runs with Goliath's sword. He runs to Goliath's hometown, Gath. The place where they're kind of going to recognize the biggest sword in the land that was well known. There's no sword like it. They're probably going to recognize that, especially considering that there wasn't hardly any swords in the land of Israel at the time. And so David, he goes to Gath. I don't know what he was thinking or if he was thinking. Maybe he was thinking, you know what? I'll go there and I'll try to get refuge or I'll go and I'll, maybe I'll be a hired hand or a mercenary and maybe they'll hire me on. Maybe they won't recognize me. But he, he, he shows up with Goliath's sword and you have to wonder if that's why they recognize him. Hey, hang on. We saw a guy take that big sword once and here comes a guy with that big sword. Or maybe they had fought against David and they recognized him there. But in any case, they recognized David and he didn't expect that. He had a kind of a foolish decision that he made. You don't think, you know, this is not a wise course of action that David's taken. He's, he's desperate. And so he looks for whatever means possible that he can escape this desperate situation. So he goes to Gath, the enemy of Israel, to the Philistines. And when he shows up, the men recognize him and say, hey, isn't this David, the great king of the land? Maybe a little sarcastically. And then they said, isn't this one about whom is saying that the Saul has slain his thousands and David is ten thousands? Now David's really freaked out. You ever done something foolish and then it got you in hot water? You ever done something foolish and it puts you in a place where you're thinking, uh-oh, this is not going to end well. I'm, I'm a little con- little concerned here. Or maybe, maybe you done something foolish physically and, you know, like gone down a dark alley to take a shortcut and you thought, this was not a good idea. This could end badly. Um, well, David here, he, he realizes, oh my goodness, I, I've done something that's not very smart you know maybe maybe he was banking on the fact that back in that day there was no pictures or portraits and so you know what are the chances that they recognize him maybe he grew his hair long I don't know, who knows but he shows up there and he says when when he re- when they recognized him he was afraid he was greatly afraid then we see how does he respond 
Well, he improvised again. David was pretty quick on his feet. So he improvises again. And he pretends to be crazy. It says, you know, he started acting insane. And it's a great picture. And I think there's actually a scene in a couple famous movies like that. I might even need something similar in Braveheart, I think, where um, the main character is acting crazy to get out of a situation. Well, they kind of got that from David. And, and David is here and he realizes, oh my goodness, I better get out of this one. And so he starts acting crazy and he kind of scrawls on the city gates here, you know, and, and he starts acting weird. If you ever encountered anybody doing that, just kind of random writings, you know, that don't make any sense. And he's scrawling up there and he's kind of letting his drool come down his chin and it's all into his beard and, and the spit is kind of dribbling off his beard. Just a really kind of a nasty picture. And he's probably like muttering to himself, oh, I don't know here, you know, whatever he's doing, he's acting insane. And he starts, you know, trying to make it so the king won't want to see him. I remember a few memorable occasions in my life I've encountered people acting like that and I definitely didn't want to be around them for very long. One of the, one of the most memorable times I was working for the government and we, I started off in kind of the low level working in, in for security and reception and we were at this main gate and this guy comes, he shows up, he had driven, uh, it was in Virginia, he had, he had shown up, driven all the way from Georgia up to this government installation trying to get in and he comes up and he kind of gives him his wild eyes, he's got crazy hair and half his teeth are rotted out of his head and they're kind of black and and he has these kind of crazy eyes and he comes up and he goes, the GBI is after me. It's a Georgia Bureau of Investigation. And he, he said, I, I've, I've eluded them ever since Georgia and I've driven all the way up here, but they're right behind me. And so I'm like, sure, okay. So I hit the little buzzer for the uniform guards to be aware. Kind of got up from my desk, walk around, start engaging me in conversation, watching out of the corner of my eyes and the guards kind of come up on the sides and, and he tells me how, yeah, they've actually implanted things into my teeth and and they talk to me sometimes and tell me what to do and and so i wanted to come and and tell people about their secret plots well he was nuts i mean the guards took him down because there's no way that we want want that kind of person around and and that's what we have here david's acting crazy and there's no way that afish wants this guy around he's like what do i not have enough madmen in the you know he's saying you know i've got enough madmen here Are, are you trying to like bring more madmen to me thanks a lot and so he says, you know, let's see this guy's crazy. You want to put him, in, you want to bring him to my house now? And so it says, David departs. They let David go. And if you're reading this account, you can think of first, well, wasn't that brilliant of David? Wasn't that really just ingenious of him that he, he came up with this plan and he got away and that was really cool. Well, um, turn your Bibles for a moment, if you will. Go to, go to Psalm 34. It's actually the Psalm that Marjorie uh, read to you this morning. God put it on her heart. She didn't know I was going to mention this, but I plan to mention this in the sermon. So flip over to Psalm 34 if you have a Bible with you. You see, David is not looking at it as if he's redeemed or rescued himself. David knows what's really true here. David helps us rightly interpret what's going on. See, David is aware that God is mercifully delivering him. How do I know that? Well, Psalm 34, the very beginning of Psalm 34, it says Psalm 34, a Psalm of David. Here's, here's the setting. When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, which is another word for the, the name of the king of uh, Achish, he said, so that he drove him out and he went away. So this Psalm is a Psalm that David wrote when he was in that setting, in that situation. And here's what David said. We'll just, let's read the first 10 verses here. Here's how David viewed what God was doing in our passage in 1 Samuel 21. He says, 
I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise will continue to be in my mouth. My soul makes his boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear him be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And, and he delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you as saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. This is how David's interpreting Samuel 21. That's why I can say, I think one of the ideas we're meant to see is that God mercifully delivers his servant because that's really how David viewed this encounter, this scenario. And that's good for us to see as well. How did David apply that? He didn't just apply it to himself. He applied it to all of God's servants and it's meant to apply to us. Those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. I sought the Lord. He answered and delivered me from all my fears. He says in verse 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Maybe you're aware of your need for deliverance today. Here's a great promise from Scripture. Maybe you're feeling like you're a poor man or woman. The Lord hears and saves out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. How can we apply that? We can say... God, I want to take refuge in you. Thank you, God, that just like you delivered David, Lord, you deliver all who take refuge in you. Psalm 56 was also written at the same time, by the way. We don't have time to flip over there, but Psalm 56 says, he says, when I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. And the context is the same setting. In God, whose word I praise, in God, I trust, I shall not be afraid. What shall flesh do to me? What did David do when he encountered a desperate situation, a desperate time when his enemies surrounded him, when his life was in peril? He turned to God. He cries out to God. He receives God's deliverance and he responds in worship. Maybe God, maybe you're not in a desperate place right now, but maybe God has delivered you from a desperate situation in the past. And what's the response here? It's that we, we should praise God and say, you know what? His past deliverance is meant to give me faith and hope that he'll continue to deliver me in the future. What, what should I be afraid? What can man do to me now? Maybe you're intimidated by a relationship you're having. Maybe you're intimidated by people who are harassing or haranguing you. What can man do to you now? In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. See, God was the one who delivered David, and he went from there, tells us in the account, he went from there to this cave in Adullam. David, he's kind of bouncing around all over the place. He is desperate. He's a desperate man. He goes to Nob, and then he goes over to Moab, and then he goes to this cave in Adullam, and he, he's, he's hoping to hide out. He, he's, he's kind of going all over the place. It's this desperate trek over Israel. And he goes to the western foothills of, of Judah and probably found a cave that would be large enough to, to fit a few hundred people because there's a lot of caves like that that kind of weave in and out of the, the hills there. You know, God's merciful to deliver David. And he's often merciful to deliver us and not give us what we deserve. Instead, he delivers us from our enemies and gives us what we don't deserve, his mercy. And where do you need deliverance this morning? You know, maybe you've been foolish. 
like David. Maybe, maybe you see in the past God's delivered you. Trust that he's able to deliver you for his good, even if it's due to your own mistakes. Well, then his, we see the next thing that happens is his brother and his family, they're desperate too. They, they're aware that, that often when uh, the opposition of the king would sprout up, the king would wipe out the whole family of that opposition. And so they come running and, and they all gather to him there. And then all of a sudden now David's got this huge contingency of people. He's got people who are in debt. He's got people who are kind of disenchanted, disenfranchised. He's got people who are bitter in their souls, who they hate the government. You know, he's got a bunch of preppers. And they, they kind of surround him and go out to him. And we'll talk more about that next week when we just see this, this contrast with Saul and David. But things still weren't safe for David, so he leaves there and he takes his mom and dad out of Israel and and he goes to to Moab and and he's hoping maybe they'll be out of Saul's reach. And so we see this this kind of third way that God deals with the servant. Not only is God graciously providing and he's he's mercifully delivering, but God is providentially working in the life of his servant. Think about it for a moment. Why in the world David went to the Philistines and Gath? And then he kind of hid out in some caves. He's been different places. And now he, he goes to Moab, another enemy of Israel on the other side. Why in the world would David go there? You have to wonder, right? Why did David go to Moab? Well, even then, I think David was still trusting in God. And, and God was providentially using some historical things to provide for David. You remember one of the desperate situations I mentioned at the beginning was, was Naomi? And she and her husband, they traveled from Israel to where? Do you remember? It's, she traveled to Moab. And her boys met some Moabite women and married them. And Ruth was a Moabite woman. Maybe even from the very place where David went. And you see, God knew that in these desperate situations and circumstances of David's great-grandmother, he knew how he was going to providentially provide for David and for his parents in a safe place to be. You know, but I'm sure David didn't know that. I'm sure Naomi didn't know that. And Ruth didn't know that. But that's how God works. He He works throughout history, weaving all of history providentially for the sake of his people. And that's what we're meant to see, is that God providentially works in the life of his servant. Now, we're not told specifically that David made an appeal to the king of Moab based on his ancestry, but it's pretty likely you know, why else would an enemy king with a, an enemy servant accept this guy? But I can imagine that David said, by the way, king, my great-grandmother, she was a Moabite woman, and my father is the grandson of her. Would you keep my father and mother? They're, part, they're a quarter Moab, Moabite. And so he agrees. God providentially works through David's past and Naomi and Ruth's desperate situation as well to providentially work in the life of his servant. You know, the providence of God is is like that. He works through seemingly obscure details. He works through our family history. Difficult family history. Desperate family history. Family history that you think, this can't be very good. You know, after all, what's the good of Naomi's husband dying and her boys dying? What's the good of that? What's the good of them being strangers in a strange land? And yet, God's kind of working these things in their favor. Maybe you have areas in your life that you just can't figure out. We can take confidence and trust that God, 
He providentially works like that, even if we can't see it. Even if we can't figure out why we have situations that are desperate. Well, we've had bad things happen in our past. God is working in all of our lives providentially. You know, maybe you just coincidentally happened to bump into somebody who you went to high school with and they offer you a job when you're out of work. Or, or maybe, you know, you accidentally spill your tray at the cafeteria and a fellow student when you were actually looking for fellowship at your high school and they just happen to be a Christian and they invite you to a Bible study at school. Or maybe there's been some other way that you look back and you see, wow, I can't believe that was just kind of weird. Hmm, that was coincidental. I can't believe I met so-and-so who knows so-and-so. And now we're here in this place and God provided in this way. Well, that's God's providence. We can look back and see that God providentially works not only David, but in the lives of all of his servants. The last way that we see here is in just in verse 5 of Samuel 22.5. Look down your Bible. It's a really short verse. It says, Then the prophet Gad said to David, Do not remain in the stronghold. Depart and go into the land of Judah. So David departed and went to the forest of Herath. What do we see here? What, what, are, we, what are we seeing? We see that God, he's personally caring for his servant. God's personally caring for David. You know, seemingly out of nowhere, we don't know who Gad is before this. We don't know where he comes from. We don't know how he got on the scene or how he even encountered David. But we know that God sent him to David with a word from the Lord because prophets only give direction like that as as a word from God. And so he sends his prophet to give his word to David to personally care for his servant. And and this this obscure prophet becomes eventually attached to David and God it uses Gad to give him personal words of direction because that's what his people need, right? If, if you have placed your faith in, in, in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins and entrusted in him for life, don't you feel that desperate need for God's direction? Don't you feel that desperate need for God's word at times? You see, we're always, we're always in need, desperate need of God's word, but sometimes we're more aware than others. I think what we're meant to see is that in David's time of need, when he was desperate, bouncing from place to place, fleeing, he was looking for help wherever he could get it, he's looking to the stronghold. God sends him his word and says, No, David, you're not on the right track. I'm going to personally care for you. I'm going to give you my word to tell you where you need to go. And the seeming little thing, I think that God's people are to see that God preserves his servant through his word. Now, how's that work for us today? We don't have a prophet by our side. And if you think you have a prophet by your side, you might want to wonder about that one. Um, the, the, the prophet that we do have, that each and every one of us has been given, is, is, is the books of the Bible. We have, we have the prophets with us in, in God's spoken words, written down and preserved for us to, to care for us. We have the, the New Testament equivalent of God's prophets in the apostles and his words that, that God cares for us through his, his word now. He continues to care for us through his word. He, he mediates his care through his word when we're most desperate. There's a story that Ravi Zacharias shares of back when he was 25. He was a student minister in Vietnam in 1971. And he says, during my ministry in Vietnam in 71, one of my interpreters traveled with me was, I can't pronounce the name, Hien Pham, an energetic, devoted young Christian who worked closely as a translator, he just knew English so well, he's able to, to be immense help with them in their linguistic struggles. 
He says, by virtue of that strength, he worked with the missionaries and we traveled the length of the country. We became close friends before I bade him goodbye when I left Vietnam to return home. We were both young. Neither one of us knew what the future would hold. And within four years, though, Vietnam fell to the communists and Hien's fate was unknown. He says, 17 years later, in 1988, he received a surprise telephone call from this Vietnamese man. And he says, Brother Ravi? He says, instantly, I recognized uh, Hien's voice. We got caught up with their pleasantries, and I asked him, how you managed to get out of Vietnam and come to the United States? And he wasn't prepared for the stories about the hero. Uh, shortly after Vietnam fell to the communists, they accused him of aiding and abetting the West, and so they put him in prison right away. And they didn't let him read any English at all, and they wouldn't let him read the Bible, and he was kind of cut off from his lifeline to, to God's Word. And And then he was... On, had an onslaught of this kind of brainwashing that they did every day, saying the West was deceiving you and Marxism is a good and, and religion is bad. And so he began to believe those lies. And he said, you know, maybe God doesn't exist. Maybe my, maybe my whole life has been governed by lies. Maybe, maybe the West really has deceived me, he says. And he says, the more he thought, the more he moved towards the decision. Finally, he makes up his mind, okay, I'm determined when I wake the next day, I'm not going to pray anymore or ever think of this Christian faith again. Hien was desperate. The next morning, it says he was assigned to clean the latrines of the prison. This was the most dreaded chore, shunned by everyone. With so much distress, he began the awful task. It says he cleaned out the tin can to overflowing with toilet paper. His eye caught what he thought was English, printed on one piece of paper. Don't think too greatly about the details of this. He hurriedly washed it off and he slipped it into his hip pocket, planning to read it at night. Not having seen anything in English for such a long time, he actually waited for a free moment. So under the mosquito net that night, after his roommates fell asleep, he pulls out this small flashlight and shining it on the damp piece of paper, he read at the top corner, Romans chapter 8. He, he literally started trembling with shock as he began to read, read. And he says, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Then it goes on, who will separate us from the love of Christ our Lord, or hardship, or trouble, or persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And then it goes on, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then he related the story of how he wept in that moment. He knew his Bible. He had not seen one for so long, though. And he knew that there was no more relevant passage of conviction and strength for one who was on the verge of surrendering to the threat of evil. And so in that moment, he says, I cried out to God. I asked his forgiveness. And, and that was the first day in, in years that I've been determined to, to pray and to seek the Lord again. And he knew the Lord had other plans. So the next day, this guy, he he's desperate for God's word. And he figures, okay, somehow... The Bible got there. Let me see if it happened again. So he had never in his life volunteered for latrine duty. So he goes back the next day. And when he goes back the next day, he hunts frantically through the toilet paper in this, in this bin. And he finds another piece of, of the Bible. And he washes it out off. He takes it home. And, and he proceeded over, I can't remember how many days he shared, but over a large portion of, of a book of the Bible, of, of Romans, he he got scripture every day in, in this really desperate way. But he was desperate for God's word. And he said, that's what God used to sustain me, to strengthen me, 
to comfort me and to care for me. I knew that God was personally caring for me in a desperate time. You see, in our most dark and desperate time, God, he, he cares for us. He feeds us like David. He provides for us. He shows us mercy. He, he providentially works our past and the lives of others for our good. He, he gives us his word. He cares for us personally through his precious word. The, the question is, do you see that? Do you see God's personal care for you through his word? Do you view it that way? Do you, do you come so desperate for God's word? Do you come seeing that, that God gave you your daily bread? God provided just what we need. He, he protects us. He, he circumstantially works all things. He's merciful to us. Sometimes we get so caught up in our desperation that we fail to see God. And I think David's a great model of, of he was desperate. He cries out to God. God provides and he worships. You know, how has, how has God shown his word to care for you? I was thinking about so many times where I'd be down or discouraged and I would, I would turn on the radio and hear a word from God and then I'd get to work and a coworker would say something that would just kind of trigger that. And then I'd go to care group that night and they would, somebody there would just share that specific Bible passage and I'd just be blown away. You know, just coincidentally, God just kind of worked those things. This morning, we experienced God's personal care. Marjorie had no idea that I was going to mention uh, Psalm 34. She couldn't have. I, Samuel 21 was on the agenda, right? And um, and yet, God personally cared for us through His words. You know, maybe maybe that's happened to you. Don't take those things for granted. Instead, let your faith be built. Remember that God personally cares for you. Well, I can't think of a better place to close. Uh, turn over your Bibles to Psalm 34 again. I'll read the whole passage to you, and we'll we'll close with this and. After I close, I'll pray and I'll have the worship team come up and we'll have a chance to respond to God in worship. But let's just read the context of a part of Samuel 21. A psalm of David when he changed his behavior before Abimelech so that he drove him out and he went away. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. His soul, my soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Oh, taste and see, the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Didn't say they don't lack, they just lack no thing that's truly good for them. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ear toward their cry. Maybe that's you. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed of spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. 
He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken, and that's eventually a reference to Jesus. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Amen? Well, let's stand, and I'll pray, and if the band will go ahead and come up.